morning. <laughs> Merry Christmas. How are you? Thanks, Craig. How are you doing? Good. You holding up under the Christmas season? Better than holding up, I hope. You all sound tired. Are you out there? Let's try again. Merry Christmas. All right, good. We've been talking. We've been talking about the promise of Christmas, something that I've been calling the promise of Christmas. And the promise is indeed, it's indeed God's promise to send a son into the world to save the world. Amen? One way to look at that promise I suggested to you beginning a couple of weeks ago is to hear the promise in the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary. When Mary wondered aloud, how on earth am I going to have this baby when I am a virgin? And the angel Gabriel said to her, reminded her, said, hey, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And that's the promise of Christmas when we look at that impossible baby in that manger. Nothing is impossible with God. Last week, we started looking at the incarnation and we took the fully human piece of the nature of Jesus And we looked at a title in particular, Son of God. I suggested to you that since all followers of God are called sons and daughters and children of God in the Bible, I suggested to you that Jesus being a Son of God emphasized his humanity. And you can find his divinity in Son of God too, for sure, but it emphasizes that Jesus is truly human truly one of us, truly a fellow child of God. And then we asked, well, so what? So what that he's truly one of us? So what that he's fully human? What difference does that make for you, for me today? One answer to that question is that because he was fully human, because he decided to set down that God part, or at least not to go there and use it, even though he's fully God, because he did that, he knows exactly what it's like to be a human being living in a fallen world and to wrestle with things. He really knows what it's like when you're lonely. He really felt it himself when he gets bone tired, when you get bone tired, he knows it. He was hungry, he was sad, he was frustrated. He wrestled with temptation, perhaps like none of us ever had. And even bore the burden of sin although others sin, not his own. And so we have a Savior that knows what it's like. Another reason why it's important, I think, that we understand and fully appreciate that Jesus is fully human is that Jesus, in his fully human nature, could partner with God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit and do remarkable things. And because He did that in part, at least, as being fully human. He gives us an example that we can truly follow. It's just an excuse, in other words, to say, well, of course Jesus did that. Of course he obeyed. Of course he wasn't tempted because he was God. He obeyed. He obeyed in his full humanity. He obeyed given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and partnering with God. Remember, he didn't take advantage of being God. No, not even against temptation. And because he could do that in his full humanity, we can too. There's no sin. There's no temptation in your life that is too great. None. 
that without the power of God, you can't defeat and say, no, I will not do that. Jesus' full humanity is that important. He is truly a one-of-us example to follow, so help us God, and God does and will. Now this morning, this morning I especially want to look at the other side of Jesus' nature, the other full side, and that's his fully God nature. And this time I want to take a look at the title, Son of Man, which I'm going to suggest to you this morning emphasizes Jesus' divinity. Jesus is indeed truly God. Now going in, you should know that Son of Man isn't the only proof or the only indication or window into Jesus' divinity. His identification as Son of Man isn't the only thing showing Jesus is God. For example, there are all of those I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. A first century Jewish rabbi like Jesus simply would not use God's holy name, I am, to describe himself unless he really was and is the great I am, that is, fully God. And plus, the picture in all seven of those I am statements that he makes, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. Each one of those pictures, huge biblical pictures for God himself, I don't know that there's any more direct evidence in the text, in the words at least of the Bible of Jesus being fully God than those I am statements and the picture he uses to make it personal. So our Son of God window this morning into Jesus' divinity isn't intended as a complete picture of how we know Jesus is fully God. It's just one window, one indicator among many of his divinity. So what do we know about the Son of Man? Well, interestingly enough, we know that the phrase Son of Man is used more than any other to refer to Jesus in the Gospels. Did you know? It appears more than 80 times in the four Gospels combined, most of all in Matthew where it appears 30 times. And it's also noteworthy that it's Jesus' favorite title for himself. In fact, every single time it's used, it's Jesus talking about himself. The one time that it's on the lips of someone else, the one time is when the people repeat it back to him after he's just said he's the Son of Man to ask him, who in the world are you referring to? And so those two biblical facts alone, Son of Man is used more in the Gospels than anything else besides his name Jesus to refer to Jesus, and that it's Jesus' favorite way to describe himself, his favorite title for himself, those two facts alone just shout, wow, there must be something very significant about this title, the Son of Man. Most people, maybe you are, I know I was too, are surprised that, that Son of Man is the number one title for Jesus in the Gospels. My guess would have been, maybe yours would have been, Messiah or Christ. Same word. When you read Messiah in the text, you can substitute Christ when you read Christ, you can substitute Messiah. Same word, just a different transliteration of different languages. Messiah and Christ. I would have guessed Messiah is the one title that appears most in the Gospels. But it's not. Son of Man blows it away in frequency 
and in Jesus' own favorite for himself. Why the emphasis on Son of Man? One reason, one reason at least, is because this title gives Jesus some freedom to define and redefine who he is. Say, so what do I mean by that? Well, while Jesus was and is the long-awaited Messiah, that title Messiah, well, it had a lot of baggage tied to it by the time Jesus came. Baggage, frankly, that really got wrong what Messiah means. If you or I started up a conversation in first century Israel amongst Jews in the first century about Messiah, you would very quickly be entrenched in political debate. Messiah had come to mean a political leader, in particular a military king who would come and through the use of military might and power would just wipe out and destroy Israel's enemies. In Jesus' days, the Romans... And then Messiah would set up an earthly political throne, just like King David. And Messiah had come to mean a military leader. Even in the years of Jesus' own disciples, you remember in Gethsemane, they come to get him and they take out their knives. And he said, now, now we're going to fight the Romans? And Jesus said, no, put those knives away. You guys still don't get it. Messiah was that loaded a term. And it's fascinating. Do this sometime if you're in search of what can I do Bible study-wise and if you've got a computer that will really help. But do this sometime. It's fascinating that when you see Jesus referred to as Messiah in the Gospels, it's fascinating how many times he steers gently that conversation away from the term Messiah and its misconceptions and steers it away toward the title Son of Man. Jesus does this a lot. I'll give you two very famous examples. I bet most of you know them both. In Matthew 16, example number one, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? There it is, his favorite self-designation. And the disciples answer, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the disciples, what about you? Who do you guys say that I am? And Peter gives his famous confession. You are Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, good answer, Peter. You're right. But then the next thing out of his mouth is, hey, don't tell anyone that I'm Messiah. And we scratch our heads and we wonder, well, why not? And you know, it's not that Jesus didn't want to know, want everyone to know who he is. That's why he came. It's the title he's nervous about and what it came to mean. Don't tell him I'm Messiah. You're right, Peter. You are Messiah. Yeah, good job, Pete. Don't, don't, don't use that when you're talking about me here today because they're going to want me to wipe out the Romans with military might. And, that, that. and in case we miss it, you keep reading in that famous passage, guess what Jesus does? He steers the conversation back with his disciples toward the title Son of Man. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory 
with the angels. Jesus is concerned how the people, including his own disciples, have come to understand Messiah. Another example, perhaps the most famous example, even more than Peter's famous confession, Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin the night before he dies, remember? And the high priest, Caiaphas, is there. And Caiaphas steps up to confront Jesus. And he commands Jesus, and his command is, Tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you remember Jesus' answer? I'll bet many of you do, but do we remember his full answer? Jesus answers this way. You have said so, but oh, keep reading. He then immediately turns from Caiaphas and addresses the entire Sanhedrin and continues, but, he says, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He goes all Daniel 7, verse 13 on him. Quotes it. And again, it's almost as if Jesus is deliberately trying to take attention away from the misconceptions everyone had about the term Messiah and steering them instead toward the Son of Man. It's fascinating. So that's the first reason, perhaps, why Son of Man is given so much emphasis by Jesus. Son of Man didn't have the baggage that Messiah did in his day. Son of Man gave Jesus far more freedom to describe who it is that he is. Speaking of Daniel 7.13, that's the second reason Jesus emphasized Son of Man because it brought to bear all of that prophetic imagery of Daniel 7. In that chapter, we read of Daniel's vision. He has a dream. And in the dream, Daniel sees one like a son of man. And Daniel's dream continues. And you really see and feel in this prophecy the pull of son of man toward a divine God. The descriptions of this son of man in that second half of Daniel, that apocalyptic half, that prophetic half, really pushes, this guy's got to be divine. Listen to what Daniel says about him in Daniel 7. Daniel writes that the one like a son of man approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And then this, the son of man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Whoa! This Son of Man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Hey, there's only one who has supreme authority, glory, and sovereign power, and that, my friends, is God himself. And not only that, he is worshipped in a positive light in Daniel 7. He's worshipped by everyone. Hey, there is only one who is deserving of worship by everyone. That's the creator. That's God himself. 
And not only that, his dominion. Oh, dominion is a powerful word, meaning supreme, even independent, sovereign authority. His dominion lasts forever. And my friends, no mere human king lives forever, let alone rules forever. This son of man figure must be divine, must be immortal, must again be God himself. And no wonder, back to Caiaphas in Jesus' trial, when Jesus lays Daniel 7.13 on him and points to himself as son of man, their immediate response is, blasphemy! They caught it! Sure, Caiaphas, I'm Messiah, I'm son of God, as you've said, but you don't even know the half of it. Jesus looked them all in the eye and laid Daniel 7.13 on him, gentlemen, I am also the Son of Man, and you will see me coming on the clouds. Blasphemy, they say. They caught it. Jesus declared he was God, using his favorite title, Son of Man. Now, when we take all 80 uses of Son of Man in the Gospels, three primary ways that Jesus uses Son of Man. First one we've looked at already. Son of Man from Daniel 7.13 suggests divinity. Second way that Jesus uses it to refer to himself is to emphasize that he must suffer. And because he's God, his suffering is unjust. He doesn't deserve it. It's as unjust as it gets. And so Jesus uses Son of Man a lot to talk about the unjust suffering he must endure, even from the simplest things like, hey, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's unjust. He's God. He should have some place to even lay his head. So even something from as simple to that as that, to all of those passages where Jesus is predicting and talking about his suffering and crucifixion, you will find that title, Son of Man, lingering around those passages of his unjust suffering. Third, Jesus uses Son of Man a lot whenever he's talking about the fact that he will one day return to judge. He's coming back to judge, to punish those in the wrong, but also to vindicate the righteous, to make right the unjust suffering. So, in the Son of Man title that Jesus uses, Using the three things we've mentioned, we have Jesus as God himself who will suffer unjustly and who will turn again, who will return again to judge, to make the unjust suffering right. That's Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, three PSs, and they sort of build one another. Three PSs to that trifecta, if you will of the understanding of the title of Son of Man, God suffering and return to judge. P.S. number one. For this one, we need to recall that story of the, of the paralytic whose friends lower him through the roof to get him close to Jesus. Remember the story? They hack through the roof and down the guy comes right in front of Jesus. And the faith of the friends is so strong, Jesus is going to heal this guy there sits the guy on the mat, right? He comes down, and there he sits. I guess you don't sit on a mat. You lay, right? So here he comes. 
probably thinking like, oh my goodness, guys, please don't drop me. So here's this thing coming down, and you know, I don't know, maybe the hole they made in the roof was, you know, only this wide, so they strapped him so he could go like through this way. Otherwise, they got to hack through a bigger piece, and that had to take a long time, by the way. Big, thick mud roofs is best evidence of the type of roof. Jesus is in there teaching, 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 teaching away. And I don't know how he figures out that someone's hacking through the roof. You know, maybe, yeah, maybe I'll send some little dirt, you know. And then, as soon as he realizes that it's happening, I picture Jesus just, oh. And then, having to calm down the owner of the house, who's ready to run out and say, guys, get off my roof, I don't want a hole up there. And these guys labor, and down he comes, and there the guy lays. Finally, he's there, and the great rabbi gets up and walks over. And he looks down. And he says something no one in their wildest dreams would imagine. Not yet. Someone might be expecting that one, Joe. He looks down and he's, after all that effort, he looks down at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're on that mat, be honest. What would you think? If I'm laying on the mat, I'd be thinking, I don't know how paralyzed he was, and I don't mean to poke fun. Yeah, but if I'm on the mat, thinking, well, that's just great. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Jesus. And it's only because the Pharisees that were there started to mutter among themselves. And you remember what they muttered? Who is this guy that speaks such blasphemy? Because why? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus notices, understands, consents, supernaturally or not. I know what you guys are thinking. Comes back to the guy. And then he lays one of the most profound questions on him in all the text. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What do you think is easier to say? No one's resolved it. You can argue both sides. Easier for me to say, hey, George, your sins are forgiven. Because you can't prove that I didn't do it. Because there he is. Harder for me to say, if he's paralyzed, George, get up and walk. Because if he doesn't, you know I'm a phony. On the other hand, much more difficult, only God can forgive sins. So he lays that one on him. Hey, what's harder to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And they go, oh. And then he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man 
has the power to forgive sins. Get up. Take your mat and go home. Whoa! And Jesus adds to the picture of Son of Man. Not only is he God who will suffer for the sins of mankind and will return one day to judge, but in his return to judge, he comes with forgiveness for all who believe. Now, second PS, and it builds. This is fascinating. Son of man, how do you say son of man in Hebrew? I know some of you know. It's church, don't talk in church. Ben Adam, say Ben Adam. Adam, right? Adam's name means man. So in Hebrew, son of man is son of Adam. Well, that's interesting. You remember Adam had... You remember two of Adam's sons, Cain and Abel. What happens between them? Cain kills Abel, right, murders Abel. The first recorded murder, the first sin actually after the Garden of Eden, the first example in the Bible of unjust suffering. Huh. And then the famous line from Genesis, Abel's blood cries out. Cries out for what? Justice. And God hears the cry and comes and deals with Cain. But here's an interesting thing that our Jewish friends immediately noticed in this text. The blood crying out, Abel's blood crying out. The Hebrew word there for blood is plural. Abel's bloods cries out. And oh, the flurry of scholarly debate over that plural word. Why is it plural? I don't know. What do you think? Someone make a mistake? That's the very word of God. I don't think it's a mistake. Well, why on earth could it, would it say bloods? It only has blood. Is that used anywhere else in the text where some one person has bloods? No. Well, it can't mean that. So why in the world is there bloods there? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the consensus they finally reach is perhaps this is the reason, and they hold it humbly. Perhaps bloods is plural because Abel's unjust suffering is symbolic for all the unjust suffering all time, all the bloods shed of the innocent. And so Abel becomes a Jewish symbol for all the unjust suffering all time that's calling out for God's justice. This son of Adam, Abel, this son of man, and then enter in Jesus. I'm the son of Adam. Daniel 7, certainly, but maybe also to tap in that picture. I'm the one who comes because of all the unjust suffering to take it on all time. What's more, in Jewish thought, 
Abel also becomes symbolic as the one who will have a hand in judging wrong, being the first victim of such a sin. He's earned that right in Jewish thought and understanding. The right to judge is associated with Abel. Oh, here comes Jesus. I'm the son of of Adam. The second Abel? I'm the one who will judge. And then he expands it and he says, and in my role as judge, I bring forgiveness. And this staggered the people in Jesus' day a bit, as it did in the healing of the paralytic. Forgive? Son of man, forgive? Abel, forgive Cain? you got to be kidding me. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? The Son of Man has the power to forgive, and he's not afraid to use it. Watch. And you think there was a buzzing sound? I don't know. If Hollywood did it, there's some sound. My day would be the $6 million man's. Yeah, if Ryan doesn't know it's a wonderful life, he doesn't know. Who's a $6 million man? I don't know. I'm the son of man, Jesus said. I will suffer unjustly like Abel, and more than Abel, my unjust suffering will be once and for all, and for everyone, all time, who has ever suffered, I'm going to take it all on, and then you know what I'm going to do? To those who are responsible for my death, to those whose sin caused me to have to do this so I could be with them forever, I'm going to come back, And I'm going to forgive that wrong. In fact, my suffering becomes the path to forgiveness for all followers of God, all followers of me. Because I am the Son of Man. And if I haven't lost us all yet, a third and final P.S. Check out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Do you not know he says to the Corinthian church, that the saints will judge the world. And there are other allusions in this, to this in the Bible as well. It seems that Jesus' authority in some people's opinion to judge and forgive, Jesus will somehow include the, 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 the saints in that judge, judging activity, include us all somehow all in Christ, to partner with Jesus in judging the world. Are you kidding me? That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and others said. We'll share with Jesus by his grace in judging the world. Now, here's the picture, and please, I don't know if it's literally going to be this way. It's one window into looking at this picture of judgment in the context of Son of of Man. But maybe it happens something like this. Maybe we'll literally see it one day. There's Abel, the first son of Adam, and he's standing there next to Jesus, two sons of Adam. And Cain is brought in and stands there before Abel and Jesus. And the one who took on all unjust suffering of the world, Jesus, turns to the first son of Adam, who represents the first unjust suffering in the world, and Jesus asks Abel something like, So, Abel, what shall I do? What shall we do with Cain? And Abel looks at his brother who murdered him and looks at Jesus, the one who died for the sins of the world. 
and looks back at Cain. And the universe pauses in complete silence, anticipating what's going to happen next. And Abel says, if he's like the second son of Adam, he looks at his brother Cain and he says, Cain, I forgive you. Boom! And I picture Jesus nodding with approval and, and, and smiling and laughing with joy. He says, so be it. I agree, Cain, you're forgiven. Now, I know the basis of anyone's judgment theologically before God is their faith in Jesus. I know. So in my picture, Cain will have to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior and have placed his trust in Jesus. I know. He'll have to accept the forgiveness. I know. So my picture needs to assume that all that's in place. But in picture, at least, the power of forgiveness that the Bible tells us about. We'll all face judgment. We'll all face judgment, the Bible says. And what we've done will be reviewed. But assuming we are in Christ, the verdict is assured. The Son of Man has forgiven us. And my friends, since in Paul's words, all the saints will judge the world, it's not just Abel standing next to Jesus and Cain brought before them. It's us. We're the saints. Those who know God get that name. Each one of us then perhaps in turn, standing next to Jesus or everyone together, I don't know, it's just a picture, it's just a feel for what Judgment Day and its forgiveness on those in Christ will feel like. Maybe we'll all be there and every one of us, everyone who has wronged us will be marched in before us and Jesus will turn to us and ask us, hey, what shall be done with him? What do you think shall be done with her? In the picture, at least, of forgiveness for those who are in Christ and for those who would accept forgiveness, the picture is, is that we can't wait to say, hey, I know what we'll do with them. Jesus, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And Jesus saying, so be it, so be it, so be it, so be it. Oh, I forgot one. So be it. They are forgiven. And remember, my friends, that you too, and me as well, will be brought in for judgment before the saints. We'll be on the other side of the dock, too. And they will be asked, what shall be done with you? Husbands, we'll all be standing there before our wives. Makes you think twice about how you treat her, doesn't it? And yes, wives before your husbands. And parents before your kids. How are you treating your kids, mom and dad? And kids before their parents. Hey kids, how are you treating mom and dad? We'll all be standing there. And I know, we need to believe in Jesus to be saved. I know. But if you do, and if you are each brother or sister in Christ we have wronged, will say, I forgive you. That will be the feel of the day. You know what? That brings a whole new meaning, doesn't it, to the biblical command, judge not lest you be judged? Or how about Matthew 7, verse 2? For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, 
This picture of judgment is only a picture. But the feel of it, at least, and the power of forgiveness, will it really be literally like that? I don't know. No one does, except God. But in the very least, if we're going to be like Jesus, then when we suffer unjustly, we need to forgive. And when we do it now, it's practice, perhaps, for the one day when we may be asked when it really counts. So what to make of all this? When designating himself Son of Man, Jesus reveals that he is also fully God, fully human, but also fully God. It's a divine title in Daniel. And as God, he will nevertheless subject himself to unjust suffering. In fact, all of it that has ever occurred to anyone, he'll take on himself. And then, as Son of Man, he will return to judge. And for those who call upon his name and know him as Lord and Savior, the verdict is secure. Not guilty. I forgive you. Welcome home. And finally, I'll close our discussion on the incarnation this way. And I hope your discussion on this continues. I've given you a lot to discuss. The fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human is remarkable. It's miraculous. It's impossible without God. But it's real. And I know, I felt it last week, some believers feel a bit threatened when Jesus' humanity in particular is pushed And I feel it sometimes too. We feel somehow that when we press his full humanity, that somehow his full divinity is being undermined. But, oh, I would encourage us, however, to fight that false conclusion. Jesus' full humanity doesn't undermine his full divinity. You know what it does instead? It sends it infinitely higher. It glorifies and magnifies God all the more because the more human Jesus is, The more impossibly remarkable, only possible with God is the incarnation. If you make him just God with skin on, well, he could have done that, but to make him fully human, oh my goodness, this God that we serve. More remarkable that God would actually and truly himself become a man. The full humanity of Christ, in fact, elevates God's miracle, makes it even more impossible that God would actually become a human being. And my friends, because Jesus is fully God, because he is fully God, God didn't only send his son, he came himself to pay for our sin. He came himself in the form of as the Son. We're not going to have time to talk about Trinity today, but because Jesus is fully God, he came himself. Oh, what a God we serve. What an amazing God we worship. The same righteous judge who correctly condemns sin. The same judge who says that sin is condemned. The same righteous judge who correctly condemns sin. Lest we be swept away in sin's condemnation, 
steps in himself and says, here, let me. I'll pay for your sin. I will. I'll take the bullet because I love you and I just have to help you. Will you please accept my help? And to all who say, yes, I will, he forgives. When we gather around the major and we look in and we see that baby, that impossible God in the flesh, but very real, he's God who will unjustly suffer and did for all of us and who one day will return to judge and as judgment he'll come with healing in his wings he'll come with forgiveness for all who simply know him and accept the help oh and that's a reason to celebrate this Christmas this God who laid his own life on the line for us amen Amen. For the benediction this morning, I want to show you a video that I received, and chances are you all received. In my experience, it seems that Christians are perhaps among the best email spammers in the world. So I've gotten this thing like six times. So chances you are, you've gotten it as well. It's one of those flash mob scenes. You know, how many of you have gotten like a, I'm just curious, how many of you have gotten, yeah, like Okay, less than half. Some of you just aren't going to participate. But, but how many? Okay, about less than half got this thing. Well, flash mob, they set these things up, I guess, and they, they go into a public place, and they don't tell the public, but there's like plants of people who are planning something. And then just spontaneously, they do it. Well, this flash mob did something in a food court that captures the lofty title, Son of Man. Because indeed, as divine, the Son of Man will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's a long time. And the video I'm about to, serve, or I'm about to show you, it's also an excellent introduction to the sermon next week called The Sign of Jonah. Because this video screams The Sign of Jonah. Which I haven't really told you what it is yet, so it's like a tease, so you come back next week. Okay. But for this morning... Let's allow this video to act as our benediction and to highlight the fully God, Son of Man. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction in this however different form? And as you watch and as you listen, receive now God's good words through this remarkable piece of music. Receive now, indeed, the promise of Christmas. Let's watch.
and ever, the one who suffered all unjust suffering and will return one day to judge with forgiveness for all of those who look to him as Lord and Savior of their lives. Merry Christmas, West Bulls. God bless us, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you. Remember, your REI envelopes on the way out. I hope you all participate. Anyone can, even if you didn't contribute. I don't know if Ryan made that clear. Second, if you know someone who hasn't seen the show, the last performance is 7 o'clock tonight. Makes a great early Christmas gift. Hope to see you tonight. God bless you all.